No, it's not tainting being French. Alright. As we're going through, like I said, we are we're in the Age of Enlightenment. Um, again, sometimes it's also referred to as the Age of Reason. That oftentimes in terms of that application, it tends to hit more in the 18th century. So maybe when we get to the 18th century, we'll talk about it as the Age of Reason. But we've been talking about how thinking has become very revolutionary in the last couple of decades. Yes, I promise this. So, 1686, Peter Schuyler, named Mayor of Albany, actually is the first Mayor of Albany. Um, he's 29 years old, he's a militia major, and he comes to the attention of Governor Dungan, who's trying to figure out uh, how to incorporate uh, Albany, how to build up the area, and he wants a known quantity and a soldier to be the mayor. Because not only is, is he kind of a rising star, but at the same time, he also knows the Native Americans in the area. He's familiar with them, he's familiar with the languages, he's familiar with the customs, and part of the role of a mayor in an incorporated area like this at this time is to be a liaison with the Native American tribes. Especially when you look at how we've talked about the Iroquois, you really want somebody in charge who actually has a positive relationship with the Iroquois, right? You don't want somebody who has a negative relationship with the Iroquois, and you certainly don't want somebody that would be a doormat to the Iroquois. You want somebody who's going to be able to handle that situation, and Schuyler was exactly that sort of guy. In fact, the Iroquois called him Quidor, or brother. To them, they considered him a class act. They totally got, well, he's, he, was, he was an honest man, but he was also very tough. So the Iroquois go, oh, I get you. I totally understand the way you work. Anyway, wacky fun. So yes, he's the great, 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 whatever, grandfather of your pastor, and he's like, the, one of the earliest people I could find in the family tree. And I actually, I realized, I, sh I showed you my, my crest, but I'm like, oh, I ought to design it the way we've been doing crests. So I, I changed it into this little thing. So, because that, that way it'll match all the Borgias and Hopsburgs and all those wacky people that we've been talking about. Anyway, more importantly, let's move on. 1687. This has been a picture of Isaac Newton the whole time over here in the corner. So if, how many people actually knew that that was Isaac Newton down there in the corner? Okay. That's Isaac Newton down there in the corner. And uh, in 1687, he published his most famous work, the Principia Mathematica, which is kind of important for a couple of different reasons. But Isaac Newton himself is important for even more reasons than just that book. Um, he's born in Lincolnshire, England. He's supposed to be a gentleman farmer. Uh, that's what his family wanted. And pardon me for just a second. Okay. That's what his family wanted, and he wanted nothing to do with it. He hated his stepfather. His father had died, I think, a little before he was born. Hated the idea of farming. Wanted to get off the farm as soon as possible. Did not want to be a gentleman farmer. He was also, he had a problem in that he, even from a young age, he would have uh, either bouts of depression or bouts of excitement. He would be what we used to call manic depressive, or now would tend to refer to as bipolar. Uh, he's actually been diagnosed as being bipolar retroactively. People are like, you know, I'm pretty sure that's that's what was going on with him. Um, what do you know about bipolar? Especially a bipolar people that are extremely smart. What does that tend to do? What does the depression in extremely smart bipolar people tend to do? Sometimes make them very suicidal or homicidal or just a lot of sidles. Extremely distraught, extremely introspective. Okay, what about the the more manic side of football? What I've seen is that they go way high mm -hmm. and then they can go way low. Yep. 
So like when they're way high, they're super happy. They do all kinds of weird, happy things. And then when they're really low, they're paranoid. They think people are coming to get them. And they're stay in their house in their underwear. And Actually, close all the curtains. And <laughs> not to do things specific people. No, but that's, you just described Isaac uh, Newton to a T. Is when he's manic, he is getting crazy amounts accomplished, and he is a stinking genius. So he's doing an amazing amount of geniusy work. When he is low, he doesn't. I mean, some people when they're when they're bipolar, when they're low, they just they can't hardly get out of bed. He was more what you were describing of this paranoid just nut. When he was a kid, he was obsessed with burning down his house with his parents in it. He's forever writing about and talking about how I wish I could burn down my house with my parents in it. That's low. Periods of high stuff. Later on, there, uh, uh, Johann Bernoulli, uh, who's a, a Swiss mathematician, uh, came up with this very complicated math equation and, and to see if anybody could solve it. Nobody in, any, in Europe could solve it at all. Nobody could even come close to solving it. Newton solved it in a single evening. He, he, picked, it up, he picked it up like at dinner time, and by 4 o'clock in the morning, he had solved the, pro the problem that nobody else could even touch. Manic. So he was struggling, but it's one thing. This is what created an immense amount of um, brilliance coming out of this guy. But he oftentimes, especially as he got older, would like hold whole conversations with hallucinated people. I mean, had, he was sure that there were people in the room that he was chatting with, and other people would walk in and be like, "You're bonkers." But again, even though he was extremely obsessive and extremely struggling. He accomplished a great deal of stuff. He worked his, his way, as a, I think it's a ballet, through college, studying mathematics and something called mechanical philosophy. We would tend to refer to this now as like, theoretical physics. Physics, what we haven't proven yet, or physics, which you can't touch necessarily. He invented the modern field of calculus. In fact, he, he wasn't even going to tell anybody. He just kind of doodled it in, in his notebooks until, um, I, think it was, I think it was Leibniz. Uh, started talking about uh, calculus, and and, um, and Newton's like, I, I actually already did that, and had to kind of prove that he retroactively that he had figured this out. Um, he had discovered the nature of gravitation. Good, you're familiar with this story, right? Okay, it sort of actually happened. It actually did. It did. Apple did not clunk him on the head as he was sitting under a tree, but he was he was walking through the orchard or standing in the orchard and, and saw an apple fall, and he's like. Huh. That's kind of Newton's thing. He's forever like, you know, I was hanging upside down in the in a church looking up at the at the candles and it dawned on me. You know, that's the sort of stuff that he did all the time. That's the way he tended to think. But so even though the apple didn't clunk him on the head, yes, he did see an apple fall in the orchard and, and, and said, Why? Why does it work that way? Um, he also studied optics and proved that white light is made up of colors. Because up until that point, that's not the way anybody thought. They thought white light is made up of light. You know, it's just like varying shades of light and dark. And then prisms make colors somehow. Funky prisms that they are. And he's like, no, 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 no. He refracted the light of the prism and then re-refracted it back into white light to show that, no, no, it's always been made up of these colors. That's what it does. And, and totally changed the way people view color and light and all that kind of stuff. So that's all Newton. Newton's smart, smart, smart guy. But the reason he was working with optics is all part of his lifelong obsession with alchemy. 
And we don't normally think about that. We always go, oh, he's a mathematician. Well, and an optics guy. Oh, and the gravity guy. And an alchemy guy. He spent decades looking for the Philosopher's Stone. Which is what? What's the Philosopher's Stone? Other than Harry Potter? Anybody know? Yeah. Pardon me? In England, in England, the book was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. But since most people in America didn't know what a Philosopher's Stone was, they changed the title in America to Sorcerer's Stone. So, wacky fun. Anyway, yeah, the Philosopher's Stone, is, it, it changes one thing into another. I mean, the, the classic thing, lead into gold. But, I mean, it's, it, it, it does stuff. It transmogrifies stuff. He, looked, he was looking for the elixir of life. To, to grant immortality, he spent. He wrote thousands and thousands of pages that he never published on alchemy. We just don't talk about that because we're like, yeah, but he's a smart guy. Anyway, 1687, with encouragement from his friend Edmund Halley. Anybody know who Edmund Halley is? What do you associate with? Yeah, he's that always comic guy. Uh, he's the, the the guy that mathematically proved it and, and showed it and everything. Edmund Halley said, "Yeah, I ought to write this stuff down." I mean, you're writing thousands of pages of really smart stuff. So he wrote down, this, put a lot of his stuff into what he called the Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy, or using math to figure out how stuff in the universe actually works. That's, that's, his, that's his whole shtick, is figuring this stuff out. Now, this arguably helped usher in the scientific revolution. We've been talking about different things, pardon me, that kind of prepped the way, but this is something that got science in the hands of even the relatively lay person. Everybody starts, I mean, remember Descartes tried to write philosophy for the lay person. Newton's trying to write um, kind of complex math for the lay person. In fact, if you, how, many, how many of you have gone up all the way through to calculus? Okay, good, and you can appreciate this. Even though even though he's writing it in terms of calculus, and, and he's expressing things in calculus, because most people didn't understand calculus, what was the fact that he just invented it? He actually explained his calculus in light of geometry. He, he, so the whole thing is written in geometry terms to do calculus stuff. It's, it was very complicated. It's it exactly right. That's exactly right. And so he wrote extremely complex geometrical uh, proofs and theorems to try to explain concepts that we would later explain very more succinctly in calculus. Anyway, so he did this laws of motion, like that an object tends to stay at rest until you shove it, you know, uh, that force equals mass times acceleration, which is kind of important, right? Because if you want to exert a lot of force, you either got to have something big or you got to move it really fast. Like toss a bullet at you, it's not going to hurt you, so I have to make it go really fast. Uh, but then also that classic, uh, when you when you push against something, anything, it's pushing back at you with equal and opposite force, which is extremely counterintuitive. When I think about pushing on this podium, I don't think that it's pushing back at me with the same amount of force. Do you tend to think of it that way? No, but that's Otherwise, you would think it would be moving, and, and you just go, right. But it's, it's not. This thing is pushing at me at the exact same amount of force that I'm pushing it at it, which actually helps explain things like gravity, that it's pushing and pulling at me the exact same way that I'm pushing and pulling at it. When I push against the Earth, it's pushing back at me. And when I'm pulling against it, it's pulling at me. 
point is, is this helps explain like planetary motion, uh, celestial mechanics, etc. And for the first time, people are like, "Oh, I can, I get this. I see how this how this actually works." Even the non-scientific community is just like, "This is awesome." Part of what this did was get people interested in science, which is cool. Part of what this did is get people interested in deism, because everything that is expressing is expressing it in deistic terms. What, what's deism? Anybody familiar with the term? You guys are awesome. That's exactly right. There is a God. Well, something out there. There's something out there that got everything going. We might as well call it God, for lack of a better term. Um, yeah, somebody put this together, this little graphic together, which I thought was nice. My, religious, my religion is life, and my church is the universe. This is the way smart people talk about religion. Um, God is unknowable, unreachable, generally disconnected, right? He, it, whatever, got things going, wound up the watch, and then walked away. That's the, what deism is. So, God might poke his head or its head in to tweak things from time to time. In fact, Leibniz made fun of, of Newton at one point by saying, apparently, apparently in Newton's understanding of the universe, God is a watchmaker that has to come in and wind the watch every once in a while because it never dawned on him just to do perpetual motion. Couldn't keep it going on its own, so occasionally you have to go because he's apparently not really good at figuring this out. Pinterest helps us understand, because, you know, Pinterest is your friend. God created the world, God loved the world. It had nothing to do with it after, after he created it. At least not much to do with it. Um, somebody put this together, which I thought was interesting, talking about the difference between atheism, deism, theism. This is the, the level of, of, of magnitude of involvement that, that a, a, a being might have with us. This is the method of involvement. So an atheist would say there is no involvement because there is no God. Both deists and theists would say, oh, he's, he's involved. He's extremely involved. But the deist would say, oh, he's a, he's a watchmaker. He's, he's, he started it, and then he walked away. He built the watch. The theist sits there and says, no, he's present. He's personal. He keeps going. Although this person said, he's a puppeteer. Obviously, says something about this person's take on God. But, but this is the basic idea. A deist says, oh, God was very involved for about a minute and a half, and then he's done. You know, he doesn't want anything else to do with it. Or I love this one. God loves you. He just doesn't want to get involved. You know, this, that's actually a wonderful snapshot of deism. Oh, he loves you. He created you. Knock yourself out. He just doesn't want to have anything to do with it. The, the, the cosmic one-night stand, if you want. This is interesting. A, a guy put together his take on what it means to be a deist. He says, I am not evil. I am not fallen. I am not a sinner. I am not an abomination. I am simply a primate trying to do the least amount of damage and experience the most happiness on this rock until I am recycled back into the that's what it means to be a deist and, and to find fulfillment. I can see why, I can see why this is attractive to people. I mean, we would look at this and say, oh, but this last part is so sad that you, you, see, you see you're just a primate on a rock and then you're going to stop at some point and that's going to be it. This is such a sad way of looking at things. They view it in terms of this and say, yeah, but that means there's nothing wrong with me. As long as I'm a relatively good person, I'm about as good a primate as you can get. And anybody who says there's something inherently wrong with people 
why there's something wrong with you. So the very same mentality that makes theists, makes Christians or Muslims or whomever, sit there and say, I have hope and you're scum, makes them say, oh, no, 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 but I have no guilt, therefore you're scum. It's the same mindset of being able to paint these, the, the picture and put it in the framework that you want to say everybody else but me is wrong. While at the same time trying to couch that by going, and by that I mean this in only the most gracious terms, but everybody other than me is wrong. I don't care whether you're a liberal or a conservative. Everybody tends to look at this, everybody else and say, you're wrong and I'm right. Even if the whole idea, as we talked about this before, even if the whole idea in liberality is to say, Oh, but everybody can be right. You know, I'm not sure everybody can be right. <laughs> well, then you're wrong. That's <laughs> <laughs> ah! the way this works. All this is to say that very quickly, deism became the rage among everybody, especially all the really smart people. If you're really smart, this is the way to look at things. Because the peasants are all sitting there doing, I mean, they don't understand things, they don't even read their Bibles, some of them can't even read. Um, if they think religious thoughts at all, half of it is just folk magic and stuff. And then the, the theologians, as we've seen, you know, half of them are completely corrupt. They don't even necessarily believe what, they, what they're spouting. Um, if you're really smart, you get past all of this wacky doctrine stuff and all this superstition that the man on the street has, and you just say, there's a God, but he doesn't want to get involved. Oh, you think? Oh, yeah. I know. I know. Yes, absolutely. If you've ever hung out with really smart people, and I enjoy hanging out with people much smarter than me. So, I mean, I, just, I, used, to, I used to be with all the honor students and stuff back in college. When you hang out with really smart people, oh, it's all about snobbery. I mean, Mensa, the whole point of Mensa is let's sit around and talk about why we're geniuses and other people aren't. Yeah, it's, it's all about snobbery. So are oh, they not being killed for those things anymore? Not usually, no. What? He's holding the hat. What are you? He's, he's like, hi. Hi, I'm Frederick the Great. Okay. Frederick the Second. Frederick the Great. Big reform candidate, you know, that became king. American revolutionaries like James Madison, who is arguably the smartest man that was there at, at the Continental Congress. Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, who are really crazy smart. Do you and when we get there, do you realize how many crazy smart people happen to be showing up at the Continental Congress? I mean, you have people like George Washington who were quite bright, and he was nowhere near these guys' leagues. And, we, and when we think about Thomas Jefferson and, and Ben Franklin inventing things right and left, you go, yeah, and they weren't in James Madison's league. It, it, so you just, they just go, wow. I mean, these are people who, who sat there at the end of the day and reconstructed all their notes for the Continental Congress and did a better job of it than the guy's secretary, the guy who's jotting down all the notes during the day's uh, proceedings because they just remembered it all. Oh yeah, and that's when Floyd said this, and that's when Bob said this, which actually didn't make sense when you think about it because it doesn't, you just go, you just remembered all that and, and wrote it all down verbatim? Yeah, okay. Smart people. Uh, Thomas Edison, later on, all these guys were self-professed deists. They're like, yes, I do believe there's a God, and I don't believe he has anything to do with any of us other than he created us. And I think if you're really smart, and here's where the brain comes, if you're really smart, you will, you will focus on this kind of God and not that kind of God. 
post-Newton. To be a smart guy is to believe that God gave you enough reason not to think that you should believe in a personal God, in some kind of trinity. If you're smart, you believe in the reason God gave you and not in something silly like faith. If you're really smart. Um, I've said this before. I remember every time I I interact with people, uh, I I always try to express um, what I do for a living, why I do it, you know, what... Uh, what I believe and why. So every time I get stuck on a plane with somebody, I'm like, aha, captive audience. Um, but I, I remember one time getting on a plane with a guy who t- um, philosophy. And it, we were talking about what, what we did, and I, I said, I, I teach logic and critical thinking, but I also have my passion. How does that work? How can you possibly, in one context of your life, teach logic and critical thinking, and in another context of your life, teach superstition and mythology? How does this work? But, okay, for those of you who are shocked, you do realize that's the way most of the world views this, right? Oh, that's awesome. Oh, yeah, I'm like, well, we're on the plane for two hours, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, but most people, even most Christians in the United States, think, well, there's reason and logic over here, and then there's my religion over here. And they're, you know, two totally different parts of my life. Because they don't go together. I know that this is all myth, but it's myth that makes me feel good. That's the way a lot of people think. That's the way most Christians that you're going to run into on the street think. Read any Barna report about what people actually believe, and it's very, very clear. I mean, we sit in this bubble where we go, no, we try to incorporate logic and critical thinking into our, into our relationship with God. We don't think of it as religion. We think of it as relationship with a person based on truth, not just based on feelings. I mean, that's what we really try to go for in our, in our, in our congregation. Most Christians don't do it that way. Not even a lot of evangelicals do it that way, which is really kind of sad. And that's why we should, we should view ourselves as being ambassadors to a different way of thinking than the world tends to think. Newton saw himself as being very religious, but he stood against Christianism, as he saw it. You know, this, this Christian interpretation of the Bible warps the Bible. In fact, he wrote a detailed letter to a guy named John Locke, whose name you're familiar if you know anything about history, that was later published as an historical account of two notable corruptions of Scripture. He argued that 1 Timothy 3.16 and 1 John 5.7 had been translated incorrectly by Christians. And you need to get back to what the Bible is really saying. For instance, 1 John 5.7-8 read, For there are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. And he says, no, 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 no. That whole Trinitarian thing, that wasn't there originally. You need to chop that part out of your Bible. Because that was not originally there. That was just thrown in there later to try to, to talk about Jesus being part of a trinity. How would you respond to that? How does he say that, what does he justify that it wasn't there originally? He went back and looked at all the original Greek texts and all the oldest editions that he could find and said it was not originally there. And he was absolutely right. Yeah, it's not in the NIV, right? Nope. It was in the, it was in the King James. It was in the King James. But he's absolutely right. This got added later. This is not the way the Bible originally wrote. Read. What it originally said was there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. The three are in agreement. He's... In First John, he's talking about specific things that have to do with that. He's not trying to make a Trinitarian argument. Somebody later in, later on, came in and tried to tweak it and make it work better. 
So he's absolutely right. Now, it doesn't mean, like Newton said, that the Trinity doctrine is anti-biblical. That's what Newton's like. See? So that whole Trinity thing. It's not in the Bible. You go, no, no, no. It just means somebody else sometime in the 16th century came in and tried to improve the Bible. But it doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't talk about Trinity. 1 Timothy 3.16 read, The mystery of godliness is, is great. God appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. And he says, no, God there was never in the original. That was never there. It was originally it was just he. But somebody came along to try to change that to make a case that God was made incarnate. What would you respond as a Christian? Yeah. Oh no! Yeah, you can go to John one. And it goes, in the beginning was the word. The word was was with God. The word was God. And then blah 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 blah. The word became flesh. You know, dwelt among us. But he's absolutely right again. Somebody came in and tweaked the Bible to make it more biblical. You know, it, originally it said he he appeared in a body. Now again, this is a non-issue theologically, doctrinally, because in the context here. It's very clear that he's talking about God. If you look around there, the verse right in front of that was about God. And you go to John or several other passages about the, the incarnation. So doctrinally, it's no big deal. It's not what he was saying. But exegetically, this is huge. Apparently, this should give you a snapshot, people are running around tweaking the Bible all over the place to make the Bible more biblical. We just need to improve on what God wrote because God was unclear about the things we've decided he was saying. He's absolutely right. Everything he was saying about that, other than his conclusions, were absolutely right. But you can thank Isaac Newton and his anti-Christianity for people going, all right, we need to do a better job of this. We need to go back in and clean this stuff up because we, are, we, we have allowed crud in there. Because people kept arguing with him, saying, but that's not what the Bible says. Ah. He keeps saying, yeah, this is exactly what the Bible says, not what your commentary on the Bible that you're reading is saying. So, thank you, Isaac Newton, for being a goof. But being a goof, he's actually helped us have better Bibles and a better job of exegesis. Kind of important, Isaac Newton. All right. 1688. i got to move away from Isaac Newton. We can't just talk about Isaac Newton. The Glorious Revolution. Anybody ever hear the Glorious Revolution? Okay. James II. We've been talking about James II, former Duke of York. He's been moving England away from Puritanism and toward high church, and specifically toward Catholicism, right? In fact, as we said, 1688, he's baptizing his own newborn son, James Francis Edward Stuart, who we're going to hear about a little bit later, as a Catholic. So it's not even just, oh, high Anglicanism. It's Catholicism. And as you can imagine, there are other people who are having a problem with that. Protestant churches are getting very frustrated, because wasn't it what, three three decades ago? The Puritans were in charge of England. And now it's not even not even Protestants in charge of England. So they're like, oh. Seven bishops publicly spoke against the Crown's tolerance of Catholicism, saying we're moving Catholic, it's a slippery slope. And so they were charged with sedition, because the Crown officially said we're going to be tolerant of Catholicism. For a bishop to get up and say, I really don't think we should. Crown says, okay, that's it. Off with your head. Wait, 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 no, no. But the whole religious tolerance thing says 
that every religious viewpoint gets to be held well within. I mean, the Anabaptists, no. But, uh, but all the good ones, you know, I see this as an Anabaptist, so I'm just bring it up. But all the good ones, yeah, we'll let that. But the bishops are like, wait a minute, how can we be seditious when the whole point of the law is Puritans, Anglicans, and Catholics should all be tolerated? We just expressed an Anglican view, surely you're going to tolerate us. And the argument was, yes, but, you're, but in saying we disagree with Catholicism, you are speaking against the king's law, therefore that's sedition. Remember earlier on when I said, it doesn't matter whether you're liberal or conservative, at some point you're still going to have to police the thing. At some point you go, what free speech do you get? If you say everybody gets to have free speech, you get to say whatever you want. And Randy stands up and says, I don't think everybody should get to say what they want. And I say, shut up. Almost like hate speech today. Uh, absolutely. At what point do you say, yes, Randy has every right under freedom of speech to say, I don't think everybody should have freedom of speech? Or at what point do I say, to protect freedom of speech for everybody, I have to shut Randy up? At some point, I still have to police this. And at some point, it becomes hate speech to say something you believe, it becomes sedition to say something you believe. Now, ultimately, they were found not guilty because the Crown's prosecutor was a doofus. Um, even though James himself pushed for conviction, he's like, we need to convict these guys. There was no decent case. They had a good case for being able to say, I don't think that this is a good idea, whether you agree with them or not. Under the law, they had every right to say it. Protestants are like, this, this we're, we're done. I mean, the king is trying to, to kill bishops for saying that Catholicism isn't great. We want another coup. But we don't want the army to do it. We want a royal coup. We want another royal. We don't want to get rid of kings. We, we're done with the whole civil war thing. We just want a better king. So who's out there? I don't want James, and I don't want his son, James Stewart. We could do a queen. In fact, the next one in line is technically James's sister, Mary. The next male in line is William, Prince of Orange, in the Netherlands. Remember... Orange in the Netherlands? That's why he's wearing nifty orange. This is James's nephew. Or I, sh I shouldn't say his sister, his daughter. It's James' nephew and James' son-in-law since he married James' daughter, Mary. So you're like, okay, these guys, they're ardent Protestants. They're good people. In fact, breaking all the norms for the time period, they actually seem to love one another. Nobody liked their queen. Nobody liked the king. I mean, they would marry each other, but they didn't like each other. These two actually seemed to be devoted to each other. That's pretty cool, actually. Um, even though she couldn't, uh, she, I, think she, I think she miscarried one child and then could never carry again. And so she was really depressed about that. And he stayed with her and loved her. And it was, they were just, these are good guys. They're white hats at a time when there were very few. Protestants like, please, William, come invade our country. Please, we're going to ask, beg that the Netherlands invade England. Please. Weird time in history. He hemmed in a hog for a while, going, I don't think that's right. I don't want to do that. But eventually he's like, okay, all right. I've, I've been fighting Catholicism against France. I can fight it in England. And France, Louis XIV, he's busy fighting against all those Germans and Italians that he talked off of the Siege of Vienna. Remember what we were talking about last week? Nobody likes Louis at the moment. And he reigns for 972 years. So nobody likes him for a long time. So he's like, sure, okay. William reaches England, and James' forces completely fall apart. 
Half of them actually defect over to William. Because a lot of them were, a lot of the veterans in James's forces, where did they learn how to be soldiers? Under Cromwell's new model army. So like all the all the colonels and generals and all this kind of stuff, he's like, aha, run against all the all the Protestants and the Puritans over there, like. Actually, I like him more. You know, this this ties more with what I it's all the privates and sergeants and things that go, wait, we're doing what now? You know, the leftover. Because they're the ones that are Anglican and Catholic. So most of his best people leave, defected to William's side. It also helps the Pope liked William better. The Pope actually gave money to the Protestants. Yes. Again, this is, I love the strange bedfellows of history. He hated James. He's like, James is, is just dumb. And, and he, in fact, he had written several letters to James saying, you're doing this wrong. All you're doing is torquing off your own country. Do not do this this way. And James kept going, no, 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 changing everything. Everybody has to be Anglican. And by Anglican, I mean Catholic. See, Pope, I'm getting us Catholic. He's like, this is not the way to win over the people. This is the way to make everybody in England hate the Catholic Church. Please stop this. And it didn't help that James supported Louis. Who was the Pope's rival? The Pope was like, okay, the biggest, loudest, anti-Pope person in, in, in Europe right now is Catholic Louis XIV. And Catholic James is like, oh, I'm buddies with Louis. Because that way we don't get into a war. We all hate the same people. Pope is like, you know what? Fine. William, will you do tolerance for Catholics? Yeah. Here's money. Go get rid of this goofball. Please don't be on my side. Have you ever found yourself saying that to people? You know, it's like somebody comes up and does something really dumb and says, I'm just like you. And you go, oh, please don't be on my side. Please. I don't know how many times in philosophy class people would raise their hands and go, here's a ridiculous argument for Christianity. I'm like, oh, no, please. Please don't do that. So, 1689, William and Mary are crowned co-rulers of England because she is technically next in line, but they don't really do that. And William didn't want to just be her consort. And so they worked hard to have both of them joint rulers, which is kind of unique. The last time they did that was uh, when, when you remember when, when England and Spain kind of co-ruled for a little bit? And, and there was this English-Spanish coalition. Yeah, it's the last time. It's like, William III, Queen Mary II, King and Queen of England. James didn't go away, though. He didn't just leave where would you go? If you're James, there are two places that make sense for you to go. Scotland, France, or Spain. France or Spain? Uh, probably, not, probably not Spain because Spain and France hate each other, and you've been, you've been buddies with France. So France is one option, but uh, Louis is engaged in fighting all the Germans and Italians right now. The, you could go up to Scotland, but the, Scot the Scottish are sitting there. Sometimes they like the Catholic leaders, sometimes they don't. He's from Scottish line, but the Scottish are ardently Protestant at this particular moment. He went to Ireland. It's like, oh, there you go. You want to go someplace that hates the English and loves Catholicism? Wait, just across the over there, right there. I can see him from my front, uh, from my front porch. Ireland. So he gets, up, he, gets, he gets supporters not only from the Catholic majority in Ireland, but also from the high church Protestants of the Church of Ireland. Because they're all you know, high church. He's like, high church, borderline Catholicism. I'm like, yeah, okay. We don't like the Puritans any more than you guys do. So he launched his own campaign from there. Next two and a half years, there's fighting going on in Ireland, and it became known as the Williamite-Jacobite War. Jacob being 
James. So, anytime you hear about the Jacobites, it's supporting a king named James. Is he, is he able to take his army with him? Um, I mean, the the seven that didn't defect. Yeah, how do you I mean, fight somebody <laughs> as a person. Because because all it's a bunch of people in Ireland, and there's a lot of feisty Irishmen who are not dead, and, and, and who still, even though it was 30 years ago, still hate Cromwell and everything having to do with England. And so James comes, and I don't know, you know, does a fake Irish accent or something, and says, "I'm one of you. You know, let's let's go fight them." So in Ireland, he uses Irish troops predominantly, and a few English troops that went over with him to fight against William. It came to close only after the disastrous defeat of Irish forces at the Battle of the Boyne. Ever hear of the Battle of the Boyne? Big, huge battle. Irish get utterly spanked at the Battle of the Boyne. In fact, um, it's right near Drogheda, which is, if you remember, the site of Cromwell's first victory in Ireland, where they're still very upset about the, the slaughter of everybody in Drogheda. Thirty years later, there's another spanking. So you can understand why the Irish go, really, really hate the English, especially having to do with this stuff. They're still extremely bitter. They still write songs about it. In fact, one of my favorite uh, Irish folk music pieces is about the Battle of the Boyne. You know, so it's, it's still very, very upset. Now, what's interesting, though, is William learned from Cromwell. And he's like, all right, my army, you will not touch a civilian. You will not destroy a town. You will not kill a prisoner. You will not demand food. In fact, you are, you're under orders. You can't even forage through the countryside. Which is class everybody. I mean, it's totally according to the rules of war for you to for, you know what foraging is? What's foraging? Yeah. Yeah, and it's like I, 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 there was an apple orchard and we were hungry, and so as we were marching through the apple orchard, we took the apples. I mean, this isn't even things like I took his sheep from his farm. It's like, no, do not even take things from the countryside. Things growing wild, don't touch it. It's a capital offense amongst the, 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 the Williams army to kill a deer in the wild. It's like, because I don't want to do anything to needlessly offend the Irish people. I saw what happened to Cromwell. I'm not doing it. And he made it very clear. He's like, we're not fighting the Irish. We're fighting James. Which is not only kind of an important thing, and, and, and it says something cool about William, but also um, it was a psychological thing that he used against, with the Irish people, saying, you do realize if you stop supporting James, we're done here. And we, we're not killing you guys. James is the one putting you in front of our swords and putting you in front of our arrows, putting you in front of our, our cannons. James is the one killing you guys. Whenever possible, we don't touch you guys. And so with every passing week, it becomes more and more clear, James is the one keeping this going, not William. So some of the Irish start going, what are we doing exactly? Why are we defending this English king against this king from the Netherlands. What, what? Why are we even doing it this way? It's kind of, kind of a big deal. Now, obviously, though, the Irish tend to, I don't know if you've noticed this, and I can say this as an Irishman, the Irish historically tend to hold grudges. It's just, you know, the way that works. And so, it doesn't matter, they're still going to hold a grudge, but it says something about William. Hopefully, this helps you to understand the Irish flag a little bit better. The green Catholic flag of Ireland, land of harps, you know, they're famed for so this is their flag going into this, plus the orange Protestant flag of William of Orange. You add those together with a white neutral buffer zone, and you get the Irish flag. That's why we do it that way, right? This is why on St. Patrick's Day, you'll, you'll notice I always wear green and orange. 
because I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to show both sides of this. I'm not Catholic, but I don't want to rub Protestantism in anybody's face. So I never just wear green. I would never just wear orange. Oh, nobody cares. I care. So I'm going to do it that way, but that's why I do it that way. But hopefully this, every time you see this, you should see Catholic-Protestant buffer zone. That's what this thing was designed for in the early 20th century. Oh. Then the conflict bled over to the Americas in what became known as King William's War. Uh, because it's not enough just to fight in England or England and Ireland. Now you've got to fight in England and Ireland and the Americas. So the French and the, the Wabanaki Confederacy stood against the English and the Iroquois nations, and everybody was fighting everybody. Um, now, remember the Iroquois. They'd already had the problems over in Michigan. Remember it was Jean de Brebeuf and all the Frenchmen that they ran into over and did nasty things to over out west, because Michigan at this point is out west. Illinois is that crazy western frontier. Wild west. Anyway, the Iroquois... Yeah. That's why Michigan's fight some of the leaders of the west. That makes total sense. Good thinking. That's right. That's right. Um... Where was it going with this? Yeah, that's right. Good point. You know all the things. <laughs> and then they're anyway. So they've run into problems with the French already, and they really like the English, especially with people like Colonel Peter Schuyler now, who's who's the mayor, who also even becomes something of a hero during the war because he does a series of skirmishes. One really uh, clever raid where he he anyway, so that's the whole thing. It gets, there's a poem about it in the 19th century. Anyway, the point is, is um, the Iroquois like the English and don't like the French, and so you get you get different Indian tribes supporting different chunks. Peace was brokered in 1697, ends the hostilities until Queen Anne's War breaks out in 1702, totally changing the colonial map. Now, pop quiz: How many of you, even that have studied history? Have ever even heard of King Philip's War, King William's War, and Queen Anne's War? Majorly important conflicts on American soil. And you never hear about this, which stinks. King Philip's War was a war specifically with Native Americans uh, earlier on. King William's War is about William uh, of Orange. Queen Anne's War, we'll talk about that when we, co when we come back, because this is in the early 1700s. This is the stuff that shaped how we do things and shaped our nation. Most of us, the first war we think of is Revolutionary War. Some of us that really like history go, well, it was the French and Indian War before that. You go, yeah, and 100 years before that was King Philip's War. Who did what now? We just don't think about that. So, now you at least know King Philip's War. Next time we'll talk about Queen Anne's War. Important stuff. But this is how we, Queen Anne's War is how we start getting things like all those Spanish territories in the South. Why, why do we have all that stuff in the South when everything's been going on in New England? Queen Anne's War. Right. There's a positive to this. To all this killing comes the Bill of Rights, the English Bill of Rights. And this is kind of important. 1689, William and Mary ascend to the throne, and William says, okay, Parliament, we need a new Bill of Rights. We need to make sure that stuff actually happens well. Not just because this parliament said so, or that parliament said so, or this king likes this, or this king likes this. Let's get it into law. Codify it. So that this crud doesn't happen anymore. You've had problems with, remember with the, the Quakers and the, and the Lord Mayor of London, when the Lord Mayor was being obnoxious about and playing with the law? We had um, the king 
pushing for the 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 uh, um, the, the prosecution of, of seven bishops here codify things in the law so that this doesn't happen anymore. So the new law says there's going to be regularly 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 scheduled sessions of a freely elected parliament. No more of this. We're just going to nominate our own people. The king's going to plot people in here. No. Free elections across the country for people for parliament. And they're going to be regular parliaments. Not just when the king calls them. We're doing this on a regular basis. Um, and in those, we are going to have freedom of speech for all the members. Let's put it in the law that you cannot get in trouble for anything you say in parliament. So that we can actually get legit discussion. Nobody's afraid that, oh, I'm going to say something unpopular, I'm going to get thrown in prison. No. Get to say whatever you want to say without prosecution. Uh, even, even as part of the Bill, the Bill of Rights, curtailed what a king can and can't do. The king is pushing for curtailing what the king can and can't do. It's like, let's do this right. I actually have a great deal of respect for, for William on a number of different levels. I also made provisions against unqualified judges. It's like, no, you don't have goofballs sitting on the, on the, on the judge's seat. You have to actually know the law. Um, against cruel and unusual punishments. Remember how uh, uh, Parliament had treated the, uh, oh, come blank, um, James, uh, anyway, got it, they put the bee on his forehead and made him ride through town and, yeah, nasty stuff. Um, taxation without Parliament's representative authority. You cannot tax British people without their representatives being involved in the process. How important is that come in, say, 100 years? Um, and we're not going to maintain a standing army because that's just plain dangerous. We'll have a standing police force, basically. Each area will have its own police force. We will call together an army when we need it, but we will not have a standing new model army kind of thing. Yeah. The Magna Carta take care of some of this? Some of this, <laughs> but they've tweaked it over the years quite a bit. And the Magna Carta uh, was more like a, almost more like a philosophical document where it said you, you do realize the king is not above the law. And some of the provisions of this come from the, are, are clarifying things in the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta itself, um, it, it didn't have as many provisions of actual law. It was more like um, a philosophical basis for law. A lot of property. A lot of property. Because it was a baron's talking about things with, with uh, King John. So, saying, no, you're not the boss of me. Or, okay, you are, but you're not the boss of this part. <laughs> anyway. So, when you realize it, and think about it, much of the background of our American understanding of government comes from William's reform, which is really kind of cool. Uh, and William's reform owes a lot to the writings of John Locke, who we've already seen because he was important enough that, that uh, Newton wrote his letter to him. So let's talk about John Locke briefly. John Locke publishes an essay concerning human understanding. Uh, presenting a very, very different view of philosophical and social realities than people had thought about up to this time. He said, okay, unlike Descartes, I'm going to argue that there are no innate ideas out there. Ideas are just human products. There's stuff out there, but there's not ideas out there waiting for you to find them. Instead, let's talk about the stuff. Some materials have innate material traits and essences, like that a given tomato is red in color or round in shape. That's just an essential quality of the, part of the essence of what it means to be a tomato. Right? That makes sense? Simple enough. But our ideas regarding those materials are secondary constructs. What you think about that is not innate. It's not essential. Such as the concept of a color being pleasing or a taste being pleasing. 
or the association of one shape or color with another. Why do I have this picture of this kid holding balls next to the tomato? What is? The ball that he's holding? Yeah. Okay. Technically, I don't know if you can see it well, these are orange. These are the red ones. But this is a different color than that. But you see this as being this color, right? And as we all know, tomatoes are, are red, not orange. Very few people, oh, I agree. But very few people say, an orange tomato. I mean, you just go, red like a tomato. Your cheeks are red like a tomato. You, know, you just go, right. So you associate, since this is technically the same color as this, and since we all know that these are red, you associate this as being red, and these being almost pinkish or something. And you go, no, these are red. These are orange. But even more so, did you tend to think of this one being related to this? This is more the size, isn't it? Why didn't you go with the size instead of the color? Any association that you make is all in your head. That you call this red as opposed to orange. That's a you thing. That you see it as related to this as opposed to this is a you thing. That you put these in the red category, that's you. I'm not saying you're wrong. What I'm saying is, is those associations are all secondary things. But we tend to think of them as essential, primary things. Well, of course, this. No. So he says, then look at Genesis. All human beings are created essentially, essentially, not not in the way we use it colloquially, ah, kind of, you know, no, in their essence. We're created equal in God's eyes. I don't care whether you're male or female, I don't care whether you're black or white. God created humanity. So any assumptions that you have that you know, the relative merits or hierarchies of things are secondary things going on in your head. It's all secondary things, and even if they seem essentially true, they seem unquestionably true, all you guys are saying, well, Obviously, men are better than women. Obviously, whites are more civilized than blacks. You do realize those, that's just mental games playing. That's just, you're making laws based on these things as if they were absolute essential truths. But they aren't. They're secondary truths at best. And they need to be questioned. Every secondary truth needs to be questioned. So this became the, like the crucial foundation for the idea of laws being to support all people, not just the landowners, all people, not just the nobles, all people, not just men, all people, not just whites, all people, arguably comes from Locke. Kind of an important thing. And, and you might think, of, well, that's esoteric philosophy. When you start thinking about how do you actually live this out, you stop and go, what did I just assume? As opposed to, did I logic out? What did I just say? Well, of course this. Hint. Anytime, in any argument that you ever have with anybody, the moment anybody says, well, of course, stop right there. And go, wait, 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 wait. Of course, as if only an idiot would not believe this. Let's evaluate that premise. Never accept anything that somebody, well, of course, says this. Anyway, let's end with the Salem Witch Trials, because it's so fun. Uh, Salem Witch Trials began. And before we go into it, no one was ever burned at the stake in the Salem Witch Trials. So, if you've seen these pictures, which I found on the internet, about the Salem Witch Trials, this is bad history. There were no burnings at the stake in the Salem Witch Trials. Secondly, Salem Witch Trials were not in Salem. Well, some of them were in Salem. 
but they're all throughout New England. It wasn't just a Salem thing. It's just that Salem was kind of the epicenter, and the Salem church, well, we've already seen that it was kind of the intense church. Remember when, like, uh, uh, who, who, uh, Roger Williams came over from, from England, and the Salem church was like, you're just not cool enough for us. You know, the Salem church is the one getting in everybody's face going, you're not perfect enough. Third note, it didn't begin in 1692. There had been witch trials since the mid-1640s. It's not just one isolated incident. In fact, if you remember, there's witch trials that have been going on for hundreds of years in England and in, and in Spanish with the Inquisition. We talked about the witch finder general in England, Matthew Hopkins. So, I mean, there's, this isn't an isolated thing. It's just what we tend to associate with the Salem witch trials. That particular episode began in 1692. Even though even then, I would say, it had a context that started in 1688. If you want to understand what happened in the Salem witch trials, you've got to actually back up four years. 1688, in Boston, uh, several of the Goodwin family children suddenly became ill with symptoms that mirrored epilepsy. Why? I don't know. I've read a whole bunch of people's arguments, whether it's they were just trying to get attention, or they, uh, they'd eaten the wrong stuff, they, they had fungus in the brain. There's a gazillion different arguments out there. I don't know. But the doctor couldn't figure out what it was, and so he said, it might be witchcraft. I'm just, I want you to be aware. It might be witchcraft. Now, before you chuckle about this, because in our, in our modern sense, we go, yeah, I'm sure that's what it was. Stop. At this time in history, germ theory is still a very new idea. I mean, it just, just within the last decade or so, are they actually going, you know, diseases might be caused by organisms, not just humors of the blood, not just uh, bad thinking, it, it might actually be organisms. I think it might be. But even then, even then, most of the scientists that believed in germ theory thought they were little bitty worms, like parasites crawling into your body. Nobody exactly understands this stuff. So when we go, witchcraft, eh, what else? I mean, they don't know. Secondly, there were a lot of people being witches. There were a ton of witches back then. A lot of people engaging in folk magic, both to heal and to curse one another. When you tell people that they should be extremely religious and then tell people they can't read their Bibles, they figure out their own religion, don't they? This is what happened with England. This is what happened in France. This is what happened in the New World when we, when we told slaves that they ought to be very religious, but no, of course, I'm not going to let you attend services or read your Bible. Well, they're going to get this weird collection of, of African mysticism in with Christian imagery, and you go, and congratulations. You created voodooism from, from forcing people to remain ignorant about Christianity. So when we, when we laugh, we go, there's this mass hysteria that there are witches everywhere. You know, there were. There were witches everywhere. There are a lot of people doing it. Now, what constitutes a witch, what kind of power they have, that's, that's more of a debate. But were there witches back then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Almost every community would have at least somebody engaging in... Um, sympathetic magic and, and saying, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you bury this in your front yard, or if you hang, the, if you hang this symbol on your barn, you'll have good luck. And, yeah, witchcraft. Well, well, sometimes, but more usually it would be a folk healer or, um, or just healer. You know, go talk to the healing, that, that nice healing woman who lives outside of town. They don't necessarily say I'm a witch, but, yeah. It also helps that the children actually said, yes, the housekeeper bewitched us. The housekeeper, she placed a curse on us. She's a witch. 
So if you're thinking it might be witchcraft and you don't know what else, and you know there's a lot of witches, and the children go, yeah, she said voodoo, voodoo, voodoo on you. Like, oh, okay, then maybe she's a witch. So they quartered her and they get pulled, her name is Goody Goodwin. They pull uh, Goodwin in and they take her on the stand and they say, recite the Lord's Prayer. Prove to us you're not a witch. But she's Irish. She barely spoke English. She tried to do it. She tried to speak it in a mishmash of Irish and Latin. But she couldn't do it in English. So Puritan minister Cotton Mather, who's providing, you ever hear of Cotton Mather? Yeah. Who's presiding over this, declared her obstinate idolatrous. She's talking her satanic gibberish. You go, it's, it's a mishmash of Irish and Latin. Yes, satanic gibberish. So she's sentenced to death by public hanging. Because obviously if she can't recite the Lord's Prayer, and obviously if the children are sick, she must be a witch. Very clear. He even wrote a bestseller about it, and about witchcraft in general. Everybody's reading it, about all the dangers of witches. Not only that there are witches, but that good men, as well as, may, uh, as, well as others, may possibly have their lives shortened by such in evil instruments of Satan. Ah, witches are bad. Oh, yeah, there's people still... Well, I mean, nobody... I should back up. Nobody looks at, 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 at like the, the hammer of witches that Kramer did or this and says, oh, that's good history. Yes, I, I totally believe it. But this is considered like um, the authority of the time period on, on witches. <coughs> this, this book? This best no, Oh, the Scarlet Letter was written as Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? So that would have been in the 1800s. Oh, okay. Yes. But it, it sure loves this area. Well, and, and, and well, for that matter, in the, what, the 50s, um, Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible, using this as an analogy to the McCarthy hearings. But anyway, Reverend, Sam, Reverend Samuel Paris read the book while he was in Boston before moving to Salem to take over the church there. And he wasn't popular in large part because his wife was cute. And obviously that's going to be a problem, which is why I married me a powerful, ugly woman. Um, no, she's her birthday. I wouldn't say that. She's beautiful. I love my wife. She turns 52 today. You're a beautiful 52. Yeah, it is, isn't it? But obviously Paris is a lustful guy, right? Because he married a beautiful woman. Therefore, he's horribly lustful. You don't want that as a pastor. Plus, how dare she be that attractive in a church where there are other women's husbands there? She should have the good taste not to be a pastor's wife. Seriously, this is the argument. No, that would be bad. Then she'd be a sinner. <laughs> well, at the very least, at the very least, she should have the common decency to be like a fallen woman who comes to church but not a pastor's wife. She should not have married him. He should not have married her. Obviously, this family is something inherently wrong with them. So in 1692, when his own daughter, Betty, and some of her friends and her cousin start exhibiting epilepsy-like symptoms, everybody assumes it to be witchcraft. I mean, obviously, this is a hurting family. This is a problem. The family slave, Tichiba, makes a witch cake out of rye and the girl's urine to try to figure out this is because she learned this in Barbados. She's like, this is how you figure out what what horrible thing is going on, what what, what spirit is behind this. So Paris pushes, pressures Betty. He's like, who did this to you? Who did this to you? Who's the witch? Who do you know that's the witch? Somebody's did this to you. Who's the witch? And she's like, Tichiba. So he beats Tichiba until she finally confesses to being the witch. At which point she's thrown into jail. Case closed, right? 
because obviously she's the witch. Except that other girls start showing symptoms, and they start naming other people in the community as witches. And it's significant that all the people initially accused are either social outcasts or rivals of the girls' families. Suddenly, all the girls, all the spotlights on them, they're extremely popular, these poor victims. And all these people that they don't like, they're getting in trouble. Those who express concern about this going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is bad logic. This is bad law. Are, are immediately dismissed. People go, oh, you're, you're or worse, like John Proctor, who is in the, the Crucible. It's about John Proctor. John Proctor denounced the proceedings when his wife was accused. He's like, this is crazy. My wife's like the nicest person ever. No. So he finds himself accused of witchcraft by his own servant, Mary Warren. You're going to question this? Well, then, maybe you're a communist. Will you tell me who you know that's communist so that we can smack them? Which of your friends are communists so that we can go hurt them? I don't want to tell you about my friends so that you can go hurt them. Really? You're protecting communists, known communists, you know communists. The fact that you said, I'm not going to tell you about my friends means that you do have friends that you could tell us about. So now you're withholding evidence from a congressional hearing. That sounds like a communist. This is exactly what happened back then. Interestingly, Mary Warren had been herself accused, which is why she gave up John Proctor. I'm not the witch. I'm not the witch. He's the witch. He's the witch. Throw him under the bus. If you confess to witchcraft, you're going to be jailed. You might get tortured. You might get fined. You might just get exiled. It all depends on what you've been accused of doing. But if you don't confess, if you maintain that you're innocent, when people are clearly accusing you, then obviously you're really horrible and we need to hang you. We need to remove you from the community. So, if somebody calls you a witch, you're either going to end up being a witch and confess it, or you're going to end up being a witch and dying for it. The moment you're confused, you're, you're, you're accused, your life is over. Right? Yeah. By the end, more than 70 people have been accused, tried, and jailed in this wild exchange of things. Because they refused to confess, 19 people were hanged, including John Proctor, but not his wife, because she was pregnant. And so they said, we'll wait until after you give birth to hang you. There's a guy named Giles Corey, 71 years old, who refused to enter a plea one way or the other. He's like, I'm not saying I'm a witch. I'm not saying I'm not a witch. Oh, I found a loophole. <laughs> so they, they implemented hard and forceful punishment is what the, the official term for it is. Nobody had used this in years, but, you know, you got to get a confession. So what they did was they piled all sorts of heavy rocks on him and kept piling heavier and heavier rocks on him to force him to confess. Well, this is pre-waterboarding. Yeah, but if they'd known, man, they would have totally done that. After two days of this, he finally died from being crushed to death. Public support eventually went, um, okay, this might have gotten a little out of hand. This might be... It's like, you know, again, McCarthy hearings. Really, have you, have, you, have you no mercy, have you no compassion? This is starting to get ridiculous. Even Cotton Matter goes, you know, you guys might have pushed this a little too far. Got to be a little open-minded. You can't just kill people because they were accused. You got to prove it. And you can't just say, I saw his ghost in my room. Okay, kill him. Uh, bad mushrooms can give you that. Don't, don't do this. So he later wrote, a, no, seriously, that was his argument. He's like, you never know. what could, He's like, yeah, you, you'd be hallucinating because of what you ate. Um, but he wrote a whole book. Or a blot of mustard, yes. <laughs> he did write a whole book defending the, the witch trials in general, saying, oh, well, we got to do this. We well, had to do it, but saying, yeah, I just think we didn't do it the right way. 
by October, the governor said, okay, we're done. No more arrests, no more of this. I'm going to release and pardon everybody, which is why Elizabeth Proctor survived, because by the time she gave birth, this is all over. It's like, we're, we're done. But here's, what should we learn from this? When you think about this, what, what, what do you pull from this? Other than, yeah, McCarthyism would have been bad, too. Well, 60 years out of date, but thank you. I mean, what do we, how do we apply this today? What, what can we learn from this? Are they doing this on religious grounds or on some other justification? Well, it's religious justification, but obviously the accusations, for the most part, are coming because you feel pressured or you want to get back at somebody else. So, are there times even in today's church where we can wrap things in religious terms, but it's really more of a personal thing? Well, we had that period in the 90s where pastors and different people were being accused of um, molestation and that, that some I know for a fact that wasn't true. But enough people, it was true to justify that this is worth doing, Cotton Mather. But it becomes a witch hunt, which is why we even get the word witch hunt. You know, but it becomes a, a, a witch hunt where you just crucify the people you don't like. What were you going to say? Well, I was going to say this isn't necessarily church related, but the racial tensions coming from the police. Oh, gosh, yeah. Why did it, you know, and then you can't even say a word in defense of the police if you're in a crowd of people who have the same police. They say, but you know, so mm -hmm. and, and you just feel that public pressure so that you can understand maybe why some of these people like. Yeah, right. Anyway. Oh, no, but that works. That's perfect. It works both ways where you sit there and you go, if you if you try to say um, uh, racial profiling is not in and of itself horrendous because most of the, the terrorists that we're running into do seem to come out of the Middle East. Most of the people in the inner city committing crimes are because of their impoverished areas, and most of the impoverished areas are ghettos that... that minority members have gone to, so there's actually, the reason there's a disproportionate number of minorities is not because we are racist, but because the society has racistly placed them into low-income areas, and so the police aren't horrible when they do this. You go, well then, you're obviously racist. You go, wait, you just call me a communist. You just call me a witch. Wait, you just did the exact same thing. But it works the other way around, too, where you sit there and you go, um, if, if you try to, if if you try to say, um, well, obviously, I mean, obviously the, the, the problem is um, that all police are racist, all police are, are negative. There are people who go, no, the police are trying to protect people. No police are racist. You don't appreciate the work that they do. Even. Oh, no, there's a, there's a massive problem with race, racial profiling and racism in our police force in the United States. You can argue it stems from the first, or that the first stems from the second. I don't know. But either way you go, there are going to be people who automatically place you into a large category. Um, homosexuality is not a biblically valid lifestyle. Oh, you're homophobic. That's hate speech. No. There's a gazillion things that we could look at in our society today where we say, ah, if you take a stand here, then obviously I'm going to lump you in this extremist category. We do this in the church. We do this outside of the church. We need to make sure that we stop and think, wait, going back to John Locke, is this, is this truth or is this my interpretation of truth? It's worth stopping on that and chewing on that. Next time when we get together, we'll talk about the practice of the presence of God. We'll, we'll kick in with that, I promise. Start with something. But let's end with this. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you for all that's gone before. I thank you 
for your sovereignty, even in the midst of darker times. I thank you in your sovereignty, you even used Newton to help us clarify what it is we're putting our faith in in the scripture. Lord, I thank you for all the different ways that you walk with us. And I pray, help us, Lord, not just to be devout, but to use our God-given wisdom and, and reason in ways that actually honor you. Help us to make sure that we know what is absolute capital T truth and what is our application or interpretation of it. Help us to love one another well and love you in the process. Help us, Lord, not to, not to wrap ourselves in Christianism, but to be changed by our Christianity. We pray the Lord be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Just one more thing. I think sure. all of us in class would like to thank you for your <laughs> preparation and for Thank you very much. It's 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 a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Yo, so I think he likes doing this. I do. I, I do. <laughs>